Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. On this episode of The Curious Capitalist, I am excited to be speaking with Lindy Lee Gold. Now, Lindy is somewhat of a legend in Connecticut, and I don't think that's too much of a stretch to be saying that. She has been the Senior Development Specialist for the State of Connecticut and the Department of Economic and Community Development for over 24 years. Now, in addition to this, she is also the former president of the Gateway Community College Foundation and a member of the board for the Housatonic Community College Foundation, and a member of the Business Advisory Committee for Bridgeport University and Southern University. Now, when she's not doing all of that, Lindy is also an exceptionally valuable board member for us here at the Connecticut chapter of Conscious Capitalism. It is a real privilege. Lindy, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so good to finally nail you down. You're a busy lady. You are on so many boards and so much in demand. So thank you for your time today. So I want to find out about you, the enigma that is Lindy. Okay, that's my plan today. You've spent decades involved in community work and initiatives in Connecticut. It's really great. I remember when I was the youngest board member of many boards and it doesn't seem like decades ago but i know it was it really is and isn't it funny though you must get to this tipping point where you've gone from being the youngest but you've gone to being the most desirable and the most in demand experience is key (laughs) you have spent decades involved in community work initiatives here in ct can you take me back to the beginning and give me a bit of an insight into your career to date because it's incredible. And, and it's so much to pack into sort of a, you know, a 30 minute podcast. But I want to get to know a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Could you help me with that? Well, I could probably say it is attributable to two things. One, genetics. My father was very, very involved in community affairs. And another, although I am always irreverent, never disrespectful, really comes from my religious background and training such as it was. And that is I grew up with a rabbi who, although he did not teach me very much about my religion specifically, was a very close colleague of Martin Luther King and was certainly all about social justice or in religious terms for Jews, tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. And so based on not having the biblical obligation to complete the work, you are obliged to keep working at it. I love that. I love that. It's almost like it's a calling, isn't it? It's not a job. It's an absolute calling to make a difference in the world for the short period of time that we're on the planet. Your focus becomes heightened and matures over time into what's important to you. And I think while in younger days, I was really inclined to 
while doing and founding organizations that thank goodness still survive and thrive and are necessary, really wanting to focus on systemic sustainable change rather than band-aids. I understand basic needs and emergency crisis intervention, but really where I want to focus today is on initiatives that I truly believe will move the needle. Yeah. One of the ones I read about was, you know, your passion for education being the great leveler, you know, and to break that cycle of poverty, hence being on the boards, you know, of all of these educational establishments, I guess. How have you found that work? Has it been rewarding? It is rewarding. And I also serve in an official capacity on most of the workforce investment boards. And anything that leads to a career pathway that sustains the American dream of entry into the middle class Mm -hmm. and really being able to have the self-respect and the ability to earn and create wealth for your family and, in fact, create a new paradigm for future generations is kind of where my focus is today. So you've been involved with, I mean, so many initiatives over the years. Is there any in particular like a handful of them that really stick out for you, the ones that have really meant so much to you or have been emotional, I guess, the, like the biggest successes for you personally, not perhaps, you know, on a financial scale or a adulation? Well, I think there's nothing more fun than knowing that you founded a nonprofit and suddenly you're invited to celebrate a 30th anniversary, <laughs> which means that you've actually done your job to the extent that you were in charge and that you recruited and engaged new leadership. And as I always advise past presidents, then continue just to wear beige and smile <laughs> and never to offer gratuitous advice unless somebody asks for it. <laughs> beige, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the image is perfect. It's also my advice to people that are becoming mothers-in-law. <laughs> Oh, I hope my mother-in-law's listening. She's not a beige lady at all. Not at all. Neither have I been, but it's advice that I can give. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about your faith and religion being such a powerful part of your upbringing and your vocation, you know, your calling. Your work within the Jewish community has been ongoing for decades through vision and fundraising. Tell me a little bit about that and how that got started. Well, it's a very interesting thing because it didn't start off to be a particular focus on things Jewish, although I'm now president of the Jewish Federation Association of Connecticut. It started off because the Jewish Community Center in New Haven was host to an organization called Fellowship, at the time Fellowship Club, which was a social club, basically with some therapeutic components for chronic psychiatric patients. And this was in an age where that carried a lot of stigma and where there was no money for those services, where they were the only organization that was willing to host at no cost and do some back office for this organization. And it turned out that the then director said to me, you know, we're giving you all of this service in kind and in space, et cetera. Don't you think it's time that you came onto the board of the Jewish Center and represented this organization that we're devoting so much to? 
Now, this is where the fun part comes in. I am one of two second-generation presidents of the Jewish Community Center. My dad had been, and very often we were on opposite sides of issues. Oh, brilliant. But best friends nonetheless. I was also the first woman president. So, you know, certainly I'm very proud as someone who is non-ritualistically observant. It was at a time I was lucky enough to be part of bringing the center to its current wonderful location in Woodbridge. And I had to do a lot of negotiating with an Orthodox community and the board of rabbis who absolutely understood that I wanted to be respectful and reasonable while still keeping in mind the business constraints of operating as a nonprofit who thought like a business. So it was a tightrope and great experience. You know, those folks became friends and really understood both sides of our issues. It's almost like education, isn't it? You know, we talked about education earlier being that thing that can level the playing field and to break that cycle of poverty. What you've just described sounds like a position at the United Nations. I mean, a diplomat as well. (laughs) Crikey. Well, it really was as close to that as I've ever come. Well, except maybe when I served on the New Haven Board of Aldermen, and that was probably my least gratifying public service that I've ever done. (laughs) Do you know the one thing I do love about you more than anything is your honesty, you know, is that you, you tell it like it is, you know. I love that. I do love that. So conscious capitalism here in Connecticut, we've got a really proactive chapter. We're very lucky to have them. We've got a fabulous board of which you are on. Tell me a little bit about how you first stumbled across conscious capitalism and how you got roped into being on this board. Well, first of all, Larry Bingaman introduced me a long time ago and I was for a time on their board and I did not like the direction that it was headed in, and I dropped out for a while. I certainly kept in touch and have a lot of clients professionally who absolutely have become friends because of their values, which really reflect conscious capitalism. And then I sat down with Glenn and talked about it some more and really realized that seismic changes had occurred. And I really have just such high regard for the mission, the people who are now involved, and the lifelong learning that almost everyone there seems dedicated to. Definitely. And I know like the leadership network that they've recently um, been working on has been fascinating, you know, and it's a real journey of self-discovery for a lot of businesses that, that have joined the chapter or got involved with the chapter. And it is, it's all the passionate people. The events they put on are fabulous. We talk well, I about- think people really realize that you can do well by doing good. The biggest thing I've discovered doing these podcasts, it's been a couple of years now, has been that a lot of people discovered conscious capitalism by accident and they were actually implementing some of the tenets of conscious capitalism in business as a force for good without knowing what the name of it was. Do you know what I mean? They were just like, well, Mm -hmm. this feels like the right thing to do as a human being. Oh, hang on a minute. Here's a group of people who are like-minded. I'm going to join this gang. And it's been really lovely welcoming new members who have had that journey. It's almost like, oh, okay, now I've got a place where I can come and discuss and share my experiences and share ideas. You know, I love the doing of it. I have to tell you, no one that I've referred has been disappointed. (laughs) Really, they've enjoyed the experience. 
no matter how much they know, they feel like they've learned something every time. That's it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's great, you know. And I have to say, you know, obviously I do these podcasts, but the board do work really hard to make it enjoyable and educational, but the overriding purpose is to make a difference, you know, is to make well, a difference. I think it's that, and I think people are really excited to be in the company of so many other like-minded people. I think in my personal life, I have long and enduring friendships and I have no recollection, except I guess at it, whether they were friends first and then we've worked on initiatives together or whether because we were working on an initiative, we became friends. Mm. I do know that, you know, people who don't share those values will probably never become friends. Yeah, absolutely. Like attracts like, it truly does. A question that I like to ask people on the board of conscious capitalism has been, if a company came to you, a business comes to you and they said, we would like to make a shift towards doing business, more consciousness within our business. What would be your advice or guidance for that business or that individual? In many ways, it would depend on what impact they currently have, how they could best use their time and their platform to broadcast that more widely. I think in today's atmosphere, there are a lot of people who started off for surely commercial reasons, wanting to appear socially conscious, etc. And I think that the more their audience, whoever it is, validates that that was a great move, the more inspired they become to do more. And they probably need lessons in conscious capitalism to figure out how they can do that. Yeah. Thinking about Connecticut as a whole, doing business in the state of Connecticut, we have a, a thriving manufacturing industry, as you're fully aware of. You know, what would you say the future holds for doing business in the state of Connecticut? Has it got a bright future? What problems have we got on the horizons? What are your predictions? Well, I think that we have a lot of natural resources. There's no doubt that we are an expensive state in which to do business. But fortunately, our geographic location is such that we are very competitive, more than competitive in our region. We are certainly less expensive than Massachusetts or New York, both to do business and to live. So I think there's certainly a lot more opportunity here. I think our education system comparatively is great. So I think it inspires families to move. And what we've been seeing in terms of inward migration to Connecticut is a lot of very young people don't come back right after school. They want a bigger city environment. They want Washington or Boston or New York. However, as life moves on and they have children or marry or whatever, they want the lifestyle that Connecticut offers. So I don't think as much as we worry about a brain drain and retaining young people here, I think that we are very lucky to get a lot of mid-career people coming back. So I'm very optimistic and I can tell you from a personal level, yes, tax-wise, it's probably not the smartest thing to be here, but I think when people get to that stage of life where they worry about that, they have to look at life and say, what makes me happy? 
I could not live in a cultural wasteland with palm trees, whether they're real or plastic. <laughs> I mean, this really is my happy place. And if that means leaving less to causes I care about or less to a son who may be able to articulate, if not embrace my values, so be it. Yeah. They can make their own decisions in their own time. I think there was a figure, and I loathe to quote figures just in case I get it wrong, but something like 15,000 families relocated to Connecticut during the pandemic just from New York State alone. So, well, what's even more exciting than that, because you don't know, it may be that they'll continue to work remotely, but the number of startups during the pandemic in Connecticut was almost double the amount of any year prior. Wow, that's cool. How exciting. Yeah, now a lot of those may not survive. Mm -hmm. A lot of them will not immediately be hiring employees. They're starting off a lot of them as service businesses, some of them innovative, others practical. But the fact remains, nobody bets the farm on starting a new business unless they're also very optimistic. No, absolutely. And one of the things I've certainly noticed being an immigrant myself and moving to Connecticut is the culture of startups and entrepreneurial businesses is really actively encouraged. Yes, it's hard. Yes, taxes are hard. Healthcare is crippling, but that's countrywide. But that enthusiasm and passion to create your own world, working world, I love it. I absolutely love it. You it's know, such a buzz it's about it. interesting. I had 10 young women on a company tour. They were all students at the Southern Connecticut State University School of Business in my women's leadership program and had lunch with them afterwards. And sort of as an icebreaker, I asked all 10 of them, tell me what your dream job is. And I really thought that they would all come up with whether it was corporate ladder, whether it was being creative, innovative, whatever it was going to be. And three out of the 10 were entrepreneurs, one of whom I was really shocked, started her business during the pandemic. And I asked about the business and she was a photographer. And I said, well, that's really funny because most photographers were complaining that their world stopped because events were canceled, etc. And she looked at me and it was so smart and so practical. She said, well, I knew that everybody still needed graduation pictures. And of course she was right. Yep. Her little business right now, it's a side gig to school, but she's enjoying tremendous success. And whether she will keep at it on her own or whether she'll keep it as a side gig, who knows, but you had to give her some applause. Yeah, it's taking a problem, isn't it? And twisting it and being innovative, you know, pivoting, they say, don't they? There's all these buzzwords that I've had to learn. I think for me... Resilience, I think, is the word of the, the I, pandemic word. I like that. I'll try and drop that in somewhere. Resilience. I quite like pivoting, though. I've managed to get that into a few podcasts, Lindy. I've lived life that way. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. But one of the things certainly for me as the freelancer has been the progress that the pandemic has pushed us into the future of remote working. Now, I've always been very lucky with the remote work that I have done. I've worked with some quite progressive people. But now that way of working, of being more productive in many cases, of getting that work-life balance a little bit more even, that's all been a gift from COVID. So I try and see, you know, the glass being half well, full where I can. that's a discipline. 
What they found with all the studies is that people are working more, not less. And I will say for myself, whether it's my private life or my work life, it has enabled me to be at more than one place in one time because <laughs> I don't have to worry about windshield time. There's nothing productive yeah. with windshield time. A hundred percent. Absolutely. I just really hope and pray that we don't come out of this pandemic and take steps backwards when it comes to that. Because I think it's a real asset to particularly entrepreneurs whose clientele and potential clients are, are countrywide or even worldwide. You know? But as long as we have attendance at meetings is better, mm-hmm. exponentially better than it's ever been. And I think right now, as long as we have more jobs than people to fill them, mm-hmm. it's an employee's world and they are not running back to the office. No, definitely not. I had a child during the pandemic. So our businesses, we are both working from home and we are able to not have to pay thousands of dollars a month in daycare fees. How I will say, that? though, that uh, I've never felt so lucky to live alone <laughs> <laughs> compared to my colleagues. I don't have to shush anybody. I don't have to turn off my mic. I don't worry about who else in the house might be hungry. (laughs) Oh, but it has given us so many funny outtakes of cats walking across desks during board meetings. And it's a very different world. It's almost a little bit dystopian, isn't it? The the fact that we all kind of seem to live on Zoom now. But a long way it continue. It makes the world smaller and business easier to do and relationships easier to keep up. I know for me... Just keeping in touch with family, forget my business, but keeping in touch with family. Suddenly, we're not just a distant voice on the end of a telephone. I can see my sister's face and I can see my nieces and nephews. So there's some good things to come from and this I pandemic. also think that, as an example, I am a perennial volunteer for the Greater New Haven Chamber of Commerce Expo. And in terms of being able to provide content, because we're no longer just reliant on who's local and who can be there, And when we were doing it in person last year, we continued to do the hybrid because we were able to get speakers that we would never otherwise have been able to attract. Yeah, amazing. Just amazing. So there are some good things to come from it. I try and stay positive about this global pandemic. Hopefully we're coming towards the end. So a few more questions for you, then I will let you go, I promise. I want to know a little bit more about you and what makes you tick. You know, your work is really well documented. You're exceptionally well known for your fundraising, your visions, your making things happen, which I'm in awe of. But what do you like to do when you're not on one of your many boards or in a meeting or on a Zoom call? What do you do to relax and unwind? I kick back very well. Um, (laughs) You know, but I am lucky enough to do, I sold a few businesses before this, what I call the late stage career change that's now been 24 years. (laughs) And I was lucky enough to find something that I could do for a living what I do for a life. That's the dream. Yeah, it really is. And having been so involved with nonprofits before I ever went down this road and always having been on the ask side of things, when I saw this department and they were looking for specialists, they were going to hire like three or four people at that time who had the cross skills that would help them with what was then a merge of the Department of Housing and the Department of Economic Development, I thought, boy, this is really great. I can be on the right side of a checkbook for a change. 
<laughs> and really, really impact so many more lives yeah. than I was ever able to impact on my own. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? I think that that's the dream, isn't it? My mum used to say to me, bless her, you work to live, not live to work. And the other thing was that if you find a job that puts fire in your belly and you have passion about, you'll never do a day's work in your life. And right. uh, what you've just described for me is like the dream. It's the absolute dream. You know, it's not work, is it? It's a vocation. Love it. Love it. Right. People always ask when I'm going to retire and I kind of look at them and say, why would I? Exactly. <laughs> my life is my work. My work is my life. So, And as my son always says, geez, I don't think you should retire. You'd be doing for free what you're doing and getting paid for now. Exactly. Exactly. He's not wrong. Okay, then. So if you could pick two or three people to have a dinner party with, they can be dead or alive, mythical. I don't really care. Who would you invite to your dinner party and what questions might you ask them? Oh, it'd only be a table for two and it would be <laughs> Albert Einstein. Really? Why and, Albert? And not because of his science, but because of his fabulous sense of humor. Yeah. Which I think has seen me through life and even things that make me hysterical and are attributable to him are probably things he never said at all. <laughs> <laughs> misquoted humor love it i have to be honest i agree i was having quite a deep conversation with some friends the other day and we were just talking and i said for me what i realized i hit 35 or something and i realized that if i'm not in relationships with friends and families and partners where i'm still laughing i'm in the wrong relationship because it heals my soul it makes me who i am and when I lose the laughter, there's a problem. There's a real problem. And I'm very lucky that all the people in my life, I spend a lot of time laughing. This is how I got these wrinkles, man. You know, I've worked hard to get these laughter lines. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep laughing. So Albert Einstein for dinner. And uh, you wouldn't ask him any questions. You would just listen and laugh with him. I like it. And hopefully make him laugh too. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely and then sure you would. I would absolutely allow him to use the quotes going forward. <laughs> They'd get much more attention than mine. <laughs> okay. What would you say, if you had to look back on your career, not just your career, but life generally, what has been your greatest success, both professionally and personally, and why? The one that really sticks out like, yeah, man, I did really good. I made a difference. Well, I think certainly professionally, when I can facilitate a turnaround of a company, and it's not just for the company, if I am preserving and maybe, in fact, improving hundreds of workers' lives by keeping that company open and moving forward, that feels really great. I think providing opportunity is very important to me. I'm involved in a few projects right now that really reflect my focus on sustainable systemic change, one of which is I actually did a gut rehab of a former school building that is going to house 18 primarily women head of household families. And it will have wraparound services. It will have career path, sustainable wage job training, and a lot of other services that will be leveraged so that when these folks are able to complete a program and move out and become 
not just self-sustaining, but role models and change the paradigm for their children and future generations. That's a huge win. 100%. Another project that I became involved with, and it was funny, it was not by design. I was called in to be of some assistance to help a group navigate some political obstacles to open a uh, shelter for 18 to 24-year-old young people, many of whom are from the LGBTQ community. And when I did a deeper dive into that community particularly and realized the, the amount of personal injury, personal risk, and the suicide rate, in fact, of that community, just in exchange for meeting the most basic of needs, it became very clear to me that this was an imperative. And so rather than just being the uh, sage advisor and navigating to me what were pretty simple politics, I really jumped in with both feet. And I also got involved with our kids. The first is youth continuum because I've always been very concerned with kids aging out of the foster system and kids in the foster system, in fact, And again, did a deeper dive and looked at statistics that told me that children as young as eight years old in that system were considering suicide. Wow. And so I was able to produce an area with our kids that will let teenagers in that circumstance not only have a peer-to-peer group, but also have some financial literacy, some idea of their rights, their responsibilities, their opportunities, and basically to have hope. And again, self-esteem. When you have children who are being, you know, shuttled from place to place and home to home and given garbage bags to put their belongings in, there's a lot of repair that needs doing for these kids to be able to live successful and meaningful, hopeful lives. Very much so. Very much so. I feel the same way about the reentry community. We all have to acknowledge that our system of justice has always been driven by socioeconomics. If my child got into trouble, my child would be lawyered up and probably behave, told to behave for a year or two and would have no record ever. And if it were a kid from another family, that kid would have a scarlet letter, A, not be represented or not well represented, would go to jail, would become a former felon, and would emerge without hope. And, you know, as much as it's supposed to be restorative, the training is not great. And if somebody gets out of jail, the recidivism rate based on their rejection and their inability to earn a living can be avoided by very simple remedies. And so I've sort of taken that on as a quest as well. Do you know, it's really interesting you should say that. When I was back in the UK, I worked for a number of radio stations, but one of the things I was really passionate about and I was considering a career change was I wanted to become a prison instructor. So I wanted to work. It was a men's prison near us. We don't have many women's prisons near where I was. And it was teaching them skills that would be of use when they finally got out. And I love the idea of helping them. Well, here we also had to change laws, which is very recent. But there was a laundry list of careers and licenses 
that ex-offenders could not get. And they were crazy. It needed to be changed. And now it is changed. It's been changed. Fantastic. Good stuff. And of course, we're now very focused on manufacturing, as you know. I'm also on the board of Manufacturer CT. And the training, even the most basic training, instead of drying cars at the car wash, people emerge from an eight-week training making over $30,000 a year. Mm-hmm. that's life-changing and learning <laughs> skills you know and modern day skills you know the cnc milling right. and but also being able incredible. to come out and be a positive factor and a contributor to the family that you left and who may not be very welcoming when you return it makes a huge difference Oh, it's valuable work, isn't it? I get a real buzz out of it. I really do. I love hearing about the success stories. And one of the reasons we set up this podcast is I wanted to hear more. You know, there are so many people out there doing incredible things, perhaps not quite as well as you, but doing incredible things and changing lives. And I wanted this podcast to be a story of hope and of inspiration of what we can achieve if we just, you know, engage our brains and do things a little bit selflessly and educate ourselves nine times out of 10 about what we could do and how we could do things differently. It's fascinating talking to you. It really is. This being baseball season, I will say, and I'm not a fan, I think as long as we all realize that we can all make base hits and maybe not a home run, but together we can have a bunch of home runs and that's what we need. I love that. There's a sound bite if ever there was one. You're an absolute legend. I think we should do a part two. I think we should revisit this and find out how your projects are going in the six to eight months. I've loved talking to you today. And I'd love to spend some time in person, Claire. You're great. Oh, I don't don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm quite tired today. (laughs) I had a sleepless night from the little one, but I feel really genuinely buzzed up. I just wish there were more people on the planet like you. I think that's what it is. If there were more people on the planet like you, the world would be a better place and a place that maybe, just maybe, would be good enough for my son. Ah, we all want the world to be better for our kids or grandchildren. Yeah, for sure. The best we can hope for is to raise them so that they continue to make it better for themselves. That's his job. I've told him. I mean, he's only one on Sunday, but I have had a good chat to Otis and I've said, listen, mate, your job is to save the world. Your grandpa's going to help, but I'm going to help as well. But we need you to uh, have a few ideas. So he's working on Step one, have a cup of coffee. Step two, (laughs) save the world. Yes. That's a good mantra. Lindy, it's been amazing talking to you. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so, so much for being a part of the community. Thank you, honey. And thanks for being on the board, keeping us on the straight and narrow. I appreciate it. Well, maybe not. You're an incorrigible group. That's why you fit in so well. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about Conscious Capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding, redrockbranding.com.